is a rock and roll band you may have heard of. They are called The Beatles. They had a few hit records back in the 1960s. I think they may have even had a few number ones. In my youth, I was obsessed with this band. I have resisted doing an episode about John, Paul, George, and Ringo for years until today. Today, I tell the story of the making of the 1968 album plainly titled The Beatles on the 146th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I'm so glad you're here with me today. Are you ready to rock and roll? I say that because I'm doing a story on the Beatles. Today's story came out a bit long, longer than I usually like, but the fact is it could have been a lot longer. I probably could have talked for three hours on the White Album. So, Beatle fans out there, please excuse me for leaving out a few of the details. The part of the story I definitely won't be visiting today are the Manson murders, or whether it should have been a single album or not. I want to point out that you will not be hearing any Beatles music during this podcast. And the reason for that is, well, the Apple legal department. I've heard they can be quite litigious. And one more thing, I will not, under any circumstances today, attempt to do a fake English accent while quoting the Beatles or anybody else involved in this story. I just won't do it. Trust me, you should thank me for that. Anyway, since my story's long, let's get right into it. Here's a story about the Fab Four. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Far from the noise and pace of city life in the cool, clear air of Rishikesh, North India, Pathy News reports flower-loving yogi told reporters that his brand of peace of mind could only be truly appreciated by intelligent men of the world with rewarding activities and high incomes. Among his most valued disciples were the Beatles, top of the pop pupils. He did his best to keep them away from outsiders, but George had a way for us. Our story today is about the Beatles in 1968, specifically the making of the album called The Beatles, commonly referred to as The White Album. Personally, I find this the most fascinating album in the Beatles' career. And I don't mean the best. I believe the Beatles were at their peak in 1966 with the albums Revolver and Rubber Soul. But before we get into 1968, I must quickly look at 1967. No, wait. I must briefly go back to 1966. That's because it was on the 29th of August, 1966, at Candlestick Park in San Francisco, California, that the Beatles finished a concert and walked off stage for the last time. They would never again be a live touring band. In fact, legend has it, on the flight home from San Francisco to Los Angeles, George Harrison was heard to say, That's it then, I'm not a Beatle anymore. 
You see, since the earliest days of playing the Cavern Club in Liverpool and her time in Hamburg, Germany, up through Beatlemania, the Fab Four were always with each other, day and night. Their schedule from the day they recorded their first album, Please Please Me, in 1963, and yes, I mean the single day they recorded that whole album, to Candlestick Park in 1966 was insane. In less than four years, they recorded seven albums, tons of singles, made two feature films, toured the world more than once, made countless TV and radio appearances, and dealt with screaming fans and a very persistent press. Once the touring stopped, Paul, John, George, and Ringo finally had time to themselves. John went to make the film How I Won the War with Richard Lester. Paul did his very first solo work with the soundtrack to a movie called The Family Way. George began learning the sitar with Ravi Shankar in India. And Ringo spent his time clubbing, or with his wife Maureen, beginning a new family. Sometimes I think John and George wouldn't have minded letting the band go, or at least taking a long break, but for Paul, for one reason or another... He needed to be a Beatle. The band was his identity. He just couldn't let go of being part of the biggest rock and roll act in the world, and it was Paul who got the band back in the studio in 1967. That year started out as a great year for the band. In the first half of the year, they recorded Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. For those recording sessions, for the first time in their career, they were able to spend as much time and money as they needed to make a record. And when it was released on May 26, 1967, it was a massive hit. Musically, the band surpassed anything that was thought possible for a rock and roll band. It was number one in the UK for 27 weeks, selling a quarter million copies in the first week of its release. Time magazine declared Sgt. Pepper a historical departure in the progress of music, any music. I think for a lot of people today, they couldn't imagine just how revolutionary Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band was. But things began to go wrong in the second half of the year. The first blow was the death of their longtime manager, Brian Epstein, who died on the 27th of August at the age of 32. Besides losing a dear friend, Brian was also the man who took care of all the band's financial dealings. He was there before the fame, so he could be trusted. Now being the biggest band in the world, who could they trust? The Beatles, at least for a while, decided to take care of things themselves. This would all come to a head in 1969 and was perhaps the final nail in the coffin. Paul took it upon himself to keep the band going, sort of becoming the band leader for a while. This would create a lot of tension in the group as time went on, but in Paul's defense, if it wasn't for him, we might not have had some of that great later music. And the year ended with a film the Beatles made for TV called Magical Mystery Tour. The film was apparently Paul's idea, a surreal comedy television film that starred the Beatles. John, though, once explained, if stage shows were to be out, we wanted something to replace them. Television was an obvious answer. Paul said during the anthology documentary, I'm not sure whose idea Magical Mystery Tour was. It could have been mine. I'm not sure whether I want to take the blame for it. We were all in on it. 
but a lot of the material at that time could have been my idea. The film was the band's first major failure. The mere headline was, Beatles' Mystery Tour Baffles Viewers, and The Express called it Tasteless Nonsense and Blatant Rubbish. In the Beatles' defense, color photography was a very important part of the film, and the BBC showed it in black and white. So the Beatles went into 1968 without a manager and with their first failure. 1968 began with two important events in Beatle history. First, they started out with their own multimedia corporation, Apple Corps, and the second, which is more important to our story today, they all traveled to Rishikesh in northern India, along with their wives, girlfriends, assistants, and numerous reporters to attend an advanced transcendental meditation training course with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. They joined a group of 60 people, including musicians Donovan, Mike Love, and Paul Horn, and actress Maria Farrow and her sister Prudence. Ringo's time in India lasted only 10 days. He couldn't take the food, and his wife couldn't take the insects. But for John, Paul, and George, their time in India, without drugs except possibly a little marijuana, and only their acoustic guitars, was very productive musically. Paul stayed in India for a little over a month, leaving on March 26th. During his time there, apparently, he never got his mind off the Beatles. In fact, at one point, he was talking so much about the next Beatles album that George snapped, telling him the Beatles aren't why they're in Rishikesh. Both John and George stayed until April 12th. When John and George left, it was over some controversy that the Maharishi, who was said to be celibate, was making sexual advances on some of the young women, including Mia Farrow. This would lead to John writing the song Sexy Sadie, which would be on the White Album. Many today think these allegations were untrue, and I've read that they might have been made up by the man known as Magic Alex, a man both George and John were fascinated with. But that's a story for another day. The bottom line is, John believed these rumors and found them very disturbing. During the end of May in 1968, the band got together at George Harrison's bungalow and began recording demos. Of the 40 new compositions, they would record demos of 26. 19 would make it on the White Album, and others would make appearances on other Beatle and solo records. On the 30th of May, the Beatles entered Abbey Road Studios and began working on their follow-up to Sgt. Pepper. There had been other records issued between Pepper and the White Album, the soundtrack for Magical Mystery Tour and the single Lady Madonna, for instance, but there had not been a studio album released since Pepper, and the next, which many hoped would be sort of a Pepper 2, was highly anticipated by the fans. But the next record wouldn't be another Sgt. Pepper. In fact, the flower power psychedelic thing had pretty much run its course with the Beatles. They had done that the year before, and if there was one thing consistent for the Beatles, it was always moving on to the next thing. So the Beatles, back in the studio, began working on songs that showed just how much they were changing as people. Most notably that of the songwriting of John Lennon. I'm sure that over the years John felt frustrated over being a Beatle. He was once a rebel in a leather jacket, known to wear a toilet seat around his neck, and spoke his mind with the most colorful of language. 
but he was transformed into a smiling, suit-wearing pop musician who needed to keep his political opinions to himself. While, as Paul said, John went happily down to get fitted for his suit, it is sort of obvious that after the years went by, he felt aggravated over the restrictions put on him. Now with Brian Epstein gone, he was ready to speak his mind, and he did that with a new song, a song he called Revolution. On the White Album, it would be titled Revolution Number no. 1 and was the first song recorded for their new album. It was a slow, bluesy arrangement with a she-beep doo-wop backing vocals by Paul and George. John wanted it to be the next single, but Paul wasn't so sure, worrying about the controversy it would cause. He used the excuse that it was too slow for a single. So in July, they would revisit it and put to tape a more up-tempo rock version, the more commonly heard one. The mellow first version that was recorded in May would make the album while the fast rock version was put on a single, the flip side of Hey Jude. Interestingly, take 18 of the song lasted 10 minutes and the unused portion became the basis for John's experimental Revolution 9. Speaking of Revolution 9, that brings another change. It was no longer just the four of them working together as it always had been, now Yoko Ono was present whenever John was there. This caused a bit of tension with Paul, George, and Ringo. John writing more political or personal songs wasn't the only aspect of this album that showed a change in the band. One of the biggest was the change in the relationship between the band and their longtime producer, George Martin. Brian Epstein had brought the group to George Martin out of desperation. He had seen just about everybody else. Martin was famous for his comedy and classical music records, not rock and roll. And Martin wasn't impressed by the Beatles' demos. And he also wasn't sure about their songwriting ability. But he loved the group as people, and he knew he could sell them on their personalities alone. Soon, of course, Lennon and McCartney blossomed as songwriters, and eventually Harrison did as well. In the early days, they would present a song, sometimes in very rough form, and the band would turn to Martin for help. Martin was hugely responsible for the Beatles' recordings. The quality he achieved would be the envy of other producers all over the world. He encouraged the band to experiment and grow. Yet he was part of the old-school establishment. In many ways, he was like a father, or as engineer Jeff Emmerich called him, a schoolmaster in the recording studio. The Beatles could do whatever they wanted outside the studio. Martin had no problem with that, but in the studio, with the limited time they had, Martin was in charge, and he demanded a strict work ethic. Get in, work hard, get the songs recorded. The youngsters learned discipline, something McCartney would later praise Martin for. And the band counted on him for his opinions, ideas, and expertise. But with the White Album, the Beatles came in knowing, for the most part, just how they wanted their songs to sound. They went from, George, what can I do with this song, to, this is how the song should be done. They had grown up as musicians and didn't need Martin's input like they did in the past. In fact, they had grown so much they really didn't need each other as well. At times during the recording of the album, George, John, and Paul were all working in separate studios, and Martin was forced to run between them. George Martin said, 
They had been away for a while after the death of Brian Epstein. They came back and presented me with 33 songs, which they wanted to record all at once, literally. I was running from one studio to another, doing a kind of executive role. Now, some of this might have been because they were on a tight deadline. With Apple, their new record label, they had a deal to get the album done by a certain date. And being a double album, that made it even more difficult, but that was only part of it. John would later say, Every track is an individual track. There isn't any Beatle music on it. It was John in the band, Paul in the band, George in the band. The relationship of the band during the recording was strained and tense. Arguments were common, fighting that would really come to a head the following year during the Let It Be sessions. Engineer Peter Vance spoke of the tensions during these recordings. Things were getting very strained on the Beatles sessions by this time. The engineers would be asked to leave. They'd say, go off for a meal or go off for a drink. And you know they were having heavy discussions and didn't want anyone around. Engineer Jeff Emmerich, who had been working on the Beatles records ever since the Revolver album in 1966 and was responsible for getting a lot of the Beatles sounds during that period, had had enough. On the 16th of July, 1968, fed up with the tensions and arguments, he quit. He would return for the Abbey Road album a bit later. It wasn't only the fighting of the Beatles that caused Emmerich to quit, it was also the promotion of Chris Thomas to the role of producer. A year or so earlier, Thomas was a young kid who wanted to break into the recording business and wrote George Martin in 1967. George hired him, and during the recording of the White Album, at the age of 22, he was working as Martin's assistant, who was completely bored watching the Beatles do their own thing, decided to do something he had never done before. Chris Thomas had just taken a short vacation, and when he returned to Abbey Road, there was a note from Martin waiting for him. It said, Dear Chris, hope you had a nice holiday. I'm off on mine now. Make yourself available to the Beatles. Neil and Mel know you're coming down. George Martin, in the middle of an album, decided to just take some time off. And it took some time for the band to start trusting Chris, but in the end, he produced Birthday, Happiness is a Warm Gun, and played keyboards on four songs. The Mellotron on The Continuing Story of Bungalow Bill, Piano on Long, 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 and Savoy Truffle, and Harpsichord on Piggies. George Martin returned on October 1st, three weeks before the album was finished. The first big crisis for the band was while they were recording the song back in the USSR. It was on August 22nd. Ringo had already been frustrated as not having a lot to do. As Ron Richards explained, Ringo was always sitting in the reception area, waiting, just sitting there or reading a newspaper. He used to sit there for hours waiting for the others to turn up. During the recording of Back in the USSR, Paul thought Ringo wasn't getting the drums right. When Paul decided to play the drums himself, Ringo had had enough and, in a huff, left the band. It took two weeks before the others convinced him to come back, and George decorated his drums with flowers to welcome him. In the end, because of Ringo's absence, Paul ended up playing the drums on Back in the USSR as well as Dear Prudence, a song John wrote about Mia Farrow's sister in India. Now, I don't have time to talk about every song on the album, though I would like to, but here are a few highlights. Obla di Obla da. 
This song was based on an expression that a Nigerian conga player, Jimmy Scott, was famous for saying. Engineer Jeff Emmerich said that Lennon openly and vocally detested this song, calling it Paul's granny music shit. And Paul drove the others crazy by doing a take after take of the song, trying to get it just right. It was first recorded as a guitar-based track, and then later re-recorded as a piano track. The story goes that even though he hated the song, Lennon eventually went to the piano and played the intro riff and said, that's how it should go, fast and louder. And this is the way it appears on the record. Revolution 9, a sound collage made, made over the unused ending of Revolution 1, was primarily made by John and Yoko with little help from George Harrison. Lennon said that he was trying to paint a picture of a revolution using sound. Paul seemed a little irritated as not being involved with this project, and that led him to record Why Don't We Do It in the Road Without John. In fact, Paul didn't use anyone for that song. He did the whole thing by himself. Vocals, guitars, piano, and drums. It is thought that Ringo overdubbed some more drums on the track later. John said of this, I don't know what it was, you know. I enjoyed the track. Still, I can't speak for George, but I was always hurt when Paul would knock something off without involving us. But it was just the way it was then. And of course, George brought in Eric Clapton to play lead on the wonderful While My Guitar Gently Weeps, one of the best songs on the album. George noticed how the band's bickering would stop when another musician was brought into the room and would use this tactic again during the Let It Be sessions with Billy Preston. All times were not bad. There were some good moments as well, like when the band all took a break together to watch the Jane Mansfield rock and roll comedy The Girl Can't Help It, and then recorded Paul's song Birthday with John helping with the lyrics. Yoko Ono and Patty Harrison did backing vocals. Songs like Helter Skelter and Your Blues featured the whole band playing together. Legend goes that they recorded a 25-minute version of Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter, by the way, was written by McCartney, who was trying to outdo the band The Who. Ringo said of this recording, Helter Skelter was a track we did in total madness and hysterics in the studio. Sometimes you just had to shake out the jams. One tune that didn't make the album was George Harrison's Not Guilty, in which they did 110 takes. The song would eventually surface on the anthology album. The project was originally going to be called A Doll's House, taken from Henrik Ebsen's three-act play of the same name. However, when the British group Family released their album, Music in a Doll's House, in July of 1968, they looked for something different. They hired notable pop artist Richard Hamilton to work on it. It was Hamilton who asked if there had ever been an album just called The Beatles. When they said no, that became the name of the album. The idea came to totally contrast Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Pepper had a colorful, busy, hippie cover, so this album would be a total opposite. The first idea was to have a clear vinyl disc housed in a transparent sleeve but the record company wouldn't go for it. So eventually it was just a regular record in a plain white sleeve, with only the name of the band embossed on the cover. Each record was originally stamped with a serial number to create, in Hamilton's words, 
the ironic situation of numbered editions of something like 5 million copies. Now, I've read that only the first 1,000 copies were stamped, and since they were pressed at four different factories, there were four of each number. In 2015, Ringo Starr's personal copy of 000001 sold for a world record $790,000 at an auction. Recording sessions ended with a 24-hour marathon to get it done. Chris Thomas explained, I was in room 41 with John Lennon, and Smith was making up running orders. Listening to so many different ones made us all a little nuts. By about 4 a.m., John S. was up to about four foot of tape, cutting these little bits out and then re-splicing it. Ken came up about four in the morning and said, Chris, can you help me? Paul wants to do another mix of Helter Skelter, but he's fallen asleep at the mixer. So I came in and we mixed it while he was sleeping. Absolutely crashed out on the board. The album was mixed in two completely separate versions, one stereo and one mono. There were slight variations to some of the songs between the two. The Beatles was issued on the 22nd of November, 1968 in Britain, with the U.S. release three days later. And while the record might have taken fans by surprise, it was generally well-received. In 2003, Rolling Stones ranked the Beatles as the number 10 on its list of 500 greatest albums of all time. The album was originally going to be called A Doll's House, and the cover was going to feature the Beatles and a bunch of wild animals. But something happened. The title was abandoned, and as a reaction to the busy, multicolored covers that the Beatles had helped foster, they decided on having no artwork at all. A white album was born. Mainly through the writing skills of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, the songs reflect the life and struggles of the time in which they were recorded. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to The Sad Sack. All right, a little bit before I go. The first is I've heard other interviews with some of the engineers and whatnot that worked on the White Album, and some of them seem to say it wasn't all as bad as it's made out to be, that in general it was a pretty enjoyable experience. There's always two sides to every story. And one last thing I want to say, because it gets repeated so often, that Yoko Ono didn't break up the Beatles. She was part of the breakup, as was everything else. Everything from the death of Brian Epstein to the Beatles just going up as musicians and people. Yoko, along with the other wives and girlfriends, were all part of it. The Beatles just drifted apart. Look, could you imagine taking three of your best friends from high school and spending every waking hour with them for four, five, six years? That would drive anybody crazy. Personally, I moved into an apartment with one of my friends, and that didn't end well. Anyway, because of the length of today's show, I'm just going to do a brief ending credits. I hope you don't mind. The most important is, of course, that you should give to our Patreon page. We could really use your help in financing this network. Just go to psycon.fm. At CSICON.FM and look for the Patreon link at the top. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. I also have a Twitter and Facebook page. 
Links to the sources I used to write today's show can be found at Sycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. Thanks to Brecky and Dave and Kelly and my wife and everybody else who listens to this show. I thank you so much. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting and thrilling story. Take care. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay She was the dawn of Jeff's new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee or coffee with Jeff Years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee on coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee